folks, and welcome back to another edition of the Inebriated Cast with Matt Crispin, your host and spirit guide. So, I think we should think of this particular episode almost as a spiritual sequel to the last one about conspiracy theories. Uh, if you recall, uh, we did an Inebriated Past a while ago about conspiracy theories. This was in the context of QAnon and the rise of conspiratorial thinking and politics, and the main, and we went through a sort of a tour de raison of the American experience with conspiracy culture from the founding till now. And the big takeaway I had was that conspiracy theory is uh, sort of a spontaneous attempt to make sense of the world in the absence of class consciousness and that it is inherently spectacleized and sort of recuperated by uh, capitalist culture in a way that rem- rem- removes your sense of. Uh, agency and alert and uh, ability to uh, defeat it your sense of agency rather and that you should as always in in politics just try to focus on what you know and what you can prove and what's in front of you in terms of material politics and i still think that's largely true but then almost immediately after i we put out that episode the motherfucking epstein case exploded all over all of us and right in front of our faces, we saw evidence of a international cabal of child abuse enthusiasts and traffickers all being shepherded around the world by this shadowy puppet master with incredibly strong links to foreign and domestic intelligence agencies and is in custody. And then a weird attack happens on him in his cell. No one knows what happens. No one can say if he did it to himself or if his cellmate did it. And then two weeks later, he commits suicide. He kills himself in his cell, despondent over his future in prison, even though he hadn't even fucking been tried yet. They were in pretrial. He was still had a bunch of cards to play. He was out there giving money to women to keep them quiet. And then he has this suicide with a highlight bone breaking. We all know this. We know the absurd carnival what you saw in front of us. And it gave a lot of us the condition that we know now as Epstein brain, one of the side effects of which is a desire to follow rabbit holes wherever they lead. And that means going online and making connections, making connections between one pedophile conspiracy and another one, uh, one piece of evidence that maybe you overlooked last time and now you looking at it and maybe it's. Maybe there are dungeons under the comet ping pong. Maybe that was all true. And the reason that happens is because a conspiracy that's really happening, a conspiracy that's powerful and occurring in broad daylight, at the center of it is basically a black hole. And it's so far from our ability to prove that as we get as a, we get closer to it, we our evidence is stretched thinner and thinner like matter is as it's pulled towards a black hole until it's nothing until it's just a singular connection almost a a stream of consciousness uh and that's because we lack the evidence we don't know and so we follow things into realms that are really less about logic or evidence or anything than they are about emotional feeling and a desire for a narrative the desire to craft a narrative out of the world around us, which is one of the most basic human urges. And that takes over from your rational um, judgment. And so I've felt myself 
getting carried away basically while researching Epstein things. Uh, and I mean, the stuff you'll find out when I found out that Les Wexman, who is the sugar daddy who bankrolled Epstein's entire lifestyle and made it possible for him to become the, the billionaire hedge fund quote unquote manager that he says he was in the nineties, his carrier for his clothing lines and, and, and retail outlets that would bring clothing uh, from sweatshops in Asia to the United States was Southern Air Transport, which was Air America in the, in, uh, the Vietnam War, where it sold her- smuggled heroin out of the Golden Triangle and then was also involved in smuggling cocaine out of Central America during Iran-Contra. I mean, it was literally a CIA-owned company until uh, it was exposed as such by the Iran-Contra investigation. I mean, when you find out a thing like that, your brain starts taking these instantaneous diversions in all directions that you want to follow. And because the ev- you're beginning to willing to accept evidence that's scantier because you're more desirous of making a connection. And so you lose your quality sensor, as it were. Um, but the really insane, horrible thing about it is that even knowing that, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that any of the things that you're finding are wrong. It just means you can't know they're right to the degree that we want to act on something. And that's the maddening thing about grappling with conspiracy stuff. Because the obscurity of uh, the world around us, how we're so aware of what we don't know. We're so aware that we're getting this stream of information that seems like it's totally overwhelming, but it still has so many blind spots. And conspiracy theorizing are basically the mold spores that grow in the unenlightened corners of a state where there is no public uh, scrutiny. And the post-war American state is essentially defined by secrecy. And so that means that we live in a culture with a shit ton of fucking mold. But we remember mold can also be used to make penicillin. So today what I'm going to do is we're going to scrape some of that mold off and we're going to make a vaccine, which do not, by the way, cause autism, against conspiracy mindset that still acknowledges the reality of a lot of things about it and the worthiness of investigating it further. We'll call it uh, conspiracillin. So uh, ben, so roll up your sleeve. We're going to give you a shot of conspiracillin today with a discussion of something that we like to call in the old conspiracy community, Operation Gladio. All right. Start off just by saying that when I speak of Gladio, there's two things. There is the broader program with in all of the NATO countries and some non-NATO countries after World War II to create stay-behind networks in the event of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. And then there's the specific branch of that operation that happened in Italy. Often the, main, the whole European thing is considered Gladio. But technically, Gladio refers to the Italian uh, branch of this operation. It had different names in the different countries that it was operated operative in. So today, I'm going to when I speak of Gladio, I'm mostly referring to the Italian the Italian campaign itself. So I'm going to keep Gladio because we're mostly talking about Italy. 
But bear in mind that when I talk about it in Spain or Turkey or Greece uh, or Belgium, that technically it had its own name there, and it was part of a greater operation. McLadio is the spirit of the thing. Now, one of the things that's so enchanting about Gladio is that Gladio is in its bare outline of things that we know for sure, or at least can think to a relative certainty are true. Gladio in Italy specifically is a vindication of every wild conspiracy type theory you have, because things like false flag attacks and secret cabals operating behind the scenes are all real. That's affirmed. And so that's why it is such a tempting doorway into total conspiracy brain because, hey, if that was a true false flag, if there are real false flags in Italy, then maybe these are these or these are false flags. And then that and then you sort of go into things assuming that they are and finding evidence that suits that predisposition. So that's the danger with Gladio because it does really tell you it's real, you know. All the stuff you kind of worry about is, oh, that sounds a little crazy, but maybe this is proof that that stuff, at least here, did happen. So, but but as with any of these things, we have the things we know happened, and then we have the things we think might have happened, and the connections get more tenuous, but the problem is I don't know if they're wrong. So what I'm going to try to do is something kind of experimental for this uh, podcast, the the series here. I'm going to propose... I'm going to tell you a story about this operation in Europe. Some of the details are going to be confirmed and I think very well established. Others are going to be more suppositional and conjectural. When there is a piece that we know is true, I will underline that. But note that there is no Christman guarantee of truthfulness to this. What I'm doing is I'm telling a narrative that has been pieced together from the things that we know and can also intuit or whatever about this historical event. And then when we're all wrapped up, we'll say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to believe this happened? And how does it impact our politics? All right. So the context is the immediate end of World War II. As soon as the Nazis are defeated, the U.S. gets into a war footing in its mind with the new power of the Soviet Union. The Yalta Conference carves up Europe between a free, quote-unquote, Western Europe and a communist Eastern Europe. Uh, it is an act of realpolitik on both sides. Uh, the Western leaders allow uh, the Iron Curtain, as Churchill will come to call it, to fall in front of all of these people. Uh, uh, but at the same time, Stalin used the opportunity to secure the agreement by selling out and disavowing the communists in who were involved in a very brutal civil war with monarchists and and uh, and fascists in in Greece, and he sacrificed the Greek communists to secure the post-war uh, uh, thing. So uh, the post-war agreement. So it was both sides just making a strictly rational game theory decision. But as soon as that line was drawn on the west of it, the U.S. where it controlled land and, and, and influence was worried immediately about the possibility of an eventual Soviet attack on that part. Part of that was military. And of course that concern led to the creation of NATO, uh, uh, the Marshall plan to recapitalize the economies of these countries 
and huge military bases in Germany specifically uh, are, are clustered near the Fulda Gap. This this area, this broad uh, flat plain uh, in in Germany, uh, where the Pentagon theorized that the Soviets would one day perhaps pour divisions of tanks through. So they secure the military and economic borders, and to, but they also have to worry about the question of politics because these countries were going to have democratic institutions and they were going to have strong communist parties within these countries because in most of the countries that were under Nazi occupation or a puppet regime, the people who most effectively and strenuously fought against those Nazis were the communists. The, the partisans in, in France, uh, in, in Italy, uh, in Yugoslavia, all of them, uh, the Netherlands, they were communists. And uh, the liberals had mostly uh, capitulated and been ineffective. The uh, right had all uh, absolutely turned to become fascist uh, collaborators and enablers. The only political force to really emerge out of the war with their reputation enhanced were the communists because they had resisted and effectively in many places. Uh, in fact, the man who shot Mussolini, the man who actually shouldered a rifle in the firing squad that killed Il Duce became a p communist member of parliament in post-war Italy. So there was a danger that even though the military border had been secured with the Eastern Bloc and with the Soviets, the, 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 there was a ch chance that some of these countries could vote communists in through the front door and change from within. And that was not going to be allowed to happen. So the U.S., uh, with its NATO allied governments, came up with this idea, uh, and it was instituted through the auspices of NATO itself once it was established, which is the defense treaty between all the European countries and the U.S., uh, for mutual defense. And it was a network of stay behind groups and weapons caches in the countries of Western Europe there, which in the event of a Soviet invasion could be used to do guerrilla activities, to wage behind the uh, front line partisan warfare. Uh, like the, ironically, like the uh, Soviets had done after Operation Barbarossa, uh, less, uh, so that was the that was the plan. That was uh, that was the. I mean, there wasn't really a public face to it, but the self conception of it was as a network of stay behind caches, where there would be, say, uh, in a cave or in a in an underground bunker somewhere, uh, uh, underneath a church, maybe there would be a bunch of machine guns, uh, forged documents, uh, cash, a lot of cash. Um, explosives that could be used to create a sort of an instant guerrilla group. It's like Blue Apron for guerrillas, basically. And who is going to establish and then supervise this installation and maintenance of, of these weapons and stores and materials? Uh, who better than two groups that collaborated deeply with the United States, specifically with the CIA, during World War II and after, uh, the mafia uh, in Italy and the ex-fascists, the former supporters of Mussolini. So the mafia during World War II was making deals with the U.S. government. Lucky Luciano, head of the American Mafia Commission, 
made a deal to be allowed out of prison uh, in exchange for securing the ports of New York against saboteurs and strikers, strikers more importantly. And then he was deported to Italy after the war. But the first big, one of the first big tests of the popularity of the post-war communists in East Western Europe was during the 1948 French election, which the communists would be standing in, having been the, mo- the, the domestic force most associated with overthrowing fascism was the Communist Party, bar none. Every other organization, from the church to the establishment po- politicians, I mean, the fucking, uh, the monarchy was so stained by its association with Mussolini that they overthrew it at the end of the war. So with the mo- communists in this incredibly strong position to win this election, the CIA, the, the the nascent CIA when it was still the OSS and, and military intelligence, uh, went through Italy dispensing massive amounts of money to local mafia chieftains to use to create uh, political thugs to go crackheads at rallies and things like that, intimidate voters, um, stuff ballot boxes, uh, Ill- illegal con- contributions to media and stuff, uh, propaganda campaigns, uh, a massive clandestine effort to defeat the communists at the ballot box, mostly carried out by local mafia guys. And lo and behold, it worked. The communists were staved off from power for then. But, of course, they were still going to be a threat. The, the post-war Communist Party were one of the main parties in Europe, so, or in Italy, so much so that almost immediately the Christian Democratic Party became a catch-all party for essentially everyone left of the communists from anti-communist socialist types, uh, social Democrat types to uh, the softer former, not former fascists. Basically that was all one party uh, because they had to defeat the communists. And so that is where Gladio comes in to help bolster that effort. And uh, that, so that was the mafia's connection to the American intelligence and make them a good uh, network to use to carry out Glad- uh, Gladio. Uh, and the other was the ex-fascists themselves, who the U.S. obviously preferring to these humbled fascists who sort of knew who was in charge now were much more useful uh, and and uh, and desirable to work with than the communists. So people high up in the paramilitary elements of, of, of the Italian fascist state, like black shirts and shit, they... Uh, made deals, contacts uh, with the American military uh, occupation very quickly. Uh, their, sta- their connections go, come almost at the very end of the war because the U.S., while it was everywhere it invaded uh, Europe, it immediately started negotiating with high-level local Nazi leaders in, ex- uh, in an effort to get them to switch sides, basically. Uh, that was the preferred method of dealing with the local uh, high command that was what alan dulles was was doing uh from his office in switzerland was trying to negotiate nazis to say basically uh get rid of that hitler character and we will back you against the soviets it was it's always in the context of counterbalancing the soviets and what that meant was that there were a number of nazis and and uh who were at the end of the war protected by the u.s and given sanctuary and eventually evacuated out of europe ahead of 
investigators and head of justice, basically, and it was called a rat line. And a lot of it was coordinated with uh, the Catholic Church uh, because they had a a huge interest in getting high-level members of the Ustasha, which was the Croatian Catholic fascist party that was uh, so extreme that the Nazis actually told them to knock it off a little bit because they were creeping them out. Uh, uh, They were really good Catholic boys, so a lot of them were uh, smuggled out of Europe with the connivance of the Vatican diplomatic corps and the local fascists in Italy. So those two groups end up uh, becoming the administrators of Gladio uh, uh, over the years. So to build up Gladio, you require bodies and people, and the people that that ends up being are on the ground, these fascist thugs uh, and mob guys. Higher up, you have elite members of society and then the political class and the media class especially who will talk about more how they formalize their uh, uh, relationships and then directed the thugs lower below them on, on what to do. So you need a organizational structure and manpower. And then of course you need funding. And it must be noted that the same time that the United States is establishing these connections with the mafia, both in Italy and in Southern France, in the port cities of uh, Marseille, the Corsican mafia was hired by the CIA to break strikes by communists uh, in the immediate post-war period to beat back the same communist swells that were buffeting Italy. And those, play, those, those mobs, the mobs that the U.S. hired to help rig the election in Italy and the mobs that they hired in France to break the strikes became, in the post-war period, the preeminent heroin traffickers in the, in the world, trafficking Turkish heroin through what... Uh, the, the French Connection, everyone remembers the movie. Uh, that was, that's this, these, the, that's those guys. The guys from the French Connection are the ones we hired to break the strikes in Marseille after the war. And the Pizza Connection, which went to, um, which was another huge network of mob controlled uh, heroin distributors through pizza restaurants, that was from Italy. So, once again, this is a thing there. You cannot deny that the U.S. had the relationship with these mobs. And at the same time they were doing these things for us, they were making all this money in heroin. There's no inherent, I can't necessarily tell you that I know for sure that the CIA was involved in the heroin trade by these, carried out by these organizations. But I do know that clandestine operations require clandestine funding because if people can't, people can't see where the money is going because that defeats the entire purpose which means you need black money. And there's one thing to skim from existing budgets, but it's much, much easier to grab from funds that are never accounted for in the first place. And there's no better place than that to find untraceable cash that can be put to any kind of use you want than the drug trade. And the third piece of the puzzle, you got the money, you got the manpower. How do you distribute it? You need money laundering. And... We'll talk more about this later, but I'll just establish at this point that uh, one of the chief, there were a number of institutions that were created in the post-war era to launder money from drug deals to uh, media outlets to clandestine terrorist organizations to buy weapons with, to bribe politicians with. And a lot of that money during this period was laundered through banks associated with the Vatican. And that ended up being uh, the Vatican Bank 
ended up being the reason that we know any of this because it was in the 80s. It was a scandal with the Vatican Bank that led to the discovery of everything that I'm going to talk about here. Uh, so we'll talk more about that. But that, So that's the, other, that's the other functional element of Gladio as a, as a machine. So getting back to those connected dudes who ran the thing, not the foot soldiers in the mob or the, the black shirts, but the guys who were making decisions. These are your social elite, who you'd expect, high-level military people, high-level members of the clergy, um, uh, people in the political establishment, people in the media establishment, essentially the, the stakeholders of uh, Ital- Italy's post-war Republican government. And the way they organized themselves so that they could have at least a public face and, and be able to operate in the halls of power basically by tapping people and inducting them within their group, they created a secret society. And so they made a Masonic lodge that they called P2, which stands for Propaganda Due, which is Italian for two, Propaganda Two, which is the name of a uh, 19, very famous 19th century Italian uh, Freemasonic Lodge. And so this Freemasonic Lodge became the place where people would be identified as part of the elite, uh, approached, inducted, and then given the secrets to, and then given part of the administration of. The classic compartmentalized secret organization. And that was what cre- what coordinated and govern the actions of this organization. Uh, And it should be noted that there were proven to be a number of high-ranking Catholic prelates, including a number of cardinals, to be members of the P2 Lodge, which is directly in conflict with canon law, which strictly forbids any Catholic clergyman to be a member of the Masons. So... Whatever they were doing with Gladio was way more important to these guys than obeying the letter of the law when it came to, oh, I don't know, God's word. And I should say uh, that one of the members of this, when it was revealed, the members of this organization, one of them was an up-and-coming media go-getter named Silvio Berlusconi. So the 1948 election is a huge is the is it is the high tide for a while of Italian communism and the tide breaks and rolls back a bit now the post-war communist party becomes one of the most entrenched socially powerful communist parties to exist outside of the eastern bloc uh they have a they have a solid 20 to 30 percent uh, uh parliamentary bloc they control regional governments and mayoral ships all over Italy. Uh, they have their own, uh, they have their own union halls and uh, radio stations and newspapers. They have a parallel state with a parallel culture. To they have their own uh, social services that they that they uh, manage and operate. They are a state within a state. It is an example of nascent dual power. This is the closest we've seen uh, in the post-war context. Uh, and so they are a threat, but they are a stable and uh, relatively contained threat throughout the 50s uh, and ev- through most of the 60s. But eventually the social ferment and crisis that came 
to the U.S. and the rest and and uh, Europe and hell, J- Japan, China, uh, uh, basically everywhere. The, uh, the, the the social friction that culminated in the late '60s. Uh, eventually, it came to Italy, and it came to Italy in the form of massive social unrest and eventual violence carried out by far left activists uh, who demanded a communist revolution. They were to, they were uh, in doing this in the def, in defiance of the existing communist party, who they thought were bureaucratic and out of touch. They wanted to force the final conflict with capitalism in the streets of Italy, and. The vanguard of this were the Red Brigades, who were they were very similar to the the groups like Beiter Mannhof in Germany, Red Army faction, and uh, and uh, Japanese Red Army. You you know the types. Have you seen Carlos or Beiter Mannhof complex? That kind of thing. Ex students uh, who or the, or the weathermen less effectively uh, or effectually in the United States. They. Uh, disaffected radical students who've gone past demonstrations and nonviolence and want to uh, uh, they want to inspire a general revolution through acts of exemplary violence in the form of uh, bank robberies and uh, bombings and assassinations and they are battling not only the Italian state uh, but they are also battling the forces of Gladio so as this crisis becomes the greatest threat to the post-war order since 1948 gladio kicks into gear by instituting a plan to neutralize the left's insurgency in italy through what would later be found out to be called the strategy of tension and uh this is another thing that sounds crazy but is true is real uh the note was found the 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 thing so a lot of the the way we know a lot of the stuff is that one of the heads of this organization's house was raided during the investigation of the eighties related to that Vatican bank crisis I talked about, and they found uh, membership rolls and meeting notes, and one of the notes was about this, and the strategy of tension was a program of heightening the violence in Italy that is associated with the left through acts of false flag attacks by infiltrating leftist organizations or imitating leftist organizations, doing spectacular acts of violence in order to make the general public demand an authoritarian rule to stop the violence and the threat to them. That was the idea as laid out there. Make people so scared of what's happening that they will accept any degree of uh, authoritarian rule to end it including the reestablishment of fascism under the same people who had administered it last time. Anything to stop the violence, which they would associate with the left because the attacks would be blamed on the left. So the way that the strategy of tension ended up expressing itself was through the actions of a group called Ordine Nero, which was a neo-fascist group in Italy that was associated with the Italian uh, military and, of course, the CIA. And their first big act of violence was a bomb, uh, a, a, a bomb that was planted on a, a, a train from Florence to Munich in 1974 that exploded in a tunnel uh, in San Benito via di Sambro. 
uh, and it killed 12 people, injured 48, and it was immediately, uh, it was connected to leftist militants who uh, were then flipped and revealed to actually be associated with this fascist group, uh, Ordin Nuevo. Uh, so the 70s were sort of bookend the, the 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 years of lead the spectacular violence were sort of bookended on the one end in 74 by uh the this this which is known as the Italica express bombing and then in 1980 the bombing of the of a train station in Bologna that killed oh, uh, 85 people and injured over 200 and once again the association there between the uh, connection between the people who uh, carried out these bombings was established very early on, and their connections to the far right were established almost instantly afterwards. So these are attacks that we know for, for relative certainty were carried out by fascists in, in, in Italy who wanted to provoke a fascist takeover by mimicking left-wing violence. There's one more spectacular act of gladio in the 70s that is more conjectural i guess the this is where we're talking about how the the degrees of knowledge and evidence are different in different areas some of the parts of this vast ocean are much shallower than others uh and one of the murkiest is the 1978 kidnapping uh and murder of the Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro. Uh, Aldo Moro was uh, a leader of the Christian Democrats, who were the main op party that was the broad capitalist coalition party opposed to the communists, and which had held power uninterruptedly in Italy since 1948. And during this period, during the tumult, during this incredibly unstable era when even though the Christian Democrats were in charge, the prime minister would change on a monthly basis, practically. The Moro, toward the end of his life, began toying with the idea of creating a more stable governing coalition with part of his party, the Christian Democrats, and the communists, and bring them into government for the first time. It would be the first official communist party to govern in a Western European countries since the end of the Civil, Second World War. And this, of course, was no bueno. And in fact, uh, before he was kidnapped, uh, Morrow was told during visit to the United States by Henry Kissinger that to do so, to get in bed with a communist, would be incredibly dangerous for him. Uh, he basically veiledly threatened him in a mafia-style way uh, if he were to uh, bring the communists into government. And it it shook him to his core. He was terrified after hearing that. He kind of wanted to just quit politics completely. So in 1978, in March, uh, he was kidnapped in, in a kind of a spectacular uh, precision strike with guys dressed as cops just turned on his motorcade and murked his entire security detail without killing him, pulled him out, and then... Uh, and then spirited him away and got away cleanly. Amazing operation, which was later blamed on the Red Brigade, which, as I discussed, like most Western uh, guerrilla violent groups uh, during this period, was made up of goofus students, not a lot of professional military operations. They never really carried out those. But anyway, Moro was held for 55 days and was eventually uh, 
murdered and found uh, dead in the trunk of a car. Uh, and of course, in these conditions, the possible agreement with the communist standard government, that was off the table. It never happened. So that was good. So there are direct connections between the Italian neo-fascist scene and kind of most interestingly, the Italian military uh, and the people who killed Moro. One of the one of the more glaring ones is that the building that he was held in for part of his uh, kidnapping was owned by the Italian military intelligence. I mean, coincidence, maybe. But once again, this is where we talk about evidence getting thinner. But the lure of in making creating a narrative, the the sensuous lure of creating a narrative that involves something as amazing and outrageous as a false flag assassination of a fucking head of government in order to prevent a communist gaining power in uh, in Italy. It's an incredibly enticing story. And so, of course, subconsciously, the burden of proof you're demanding reduces as you gain out details that you want to add to your narrative. Uh, so I can't say that I believed any certainty that Aldo Moro was killed as part of uh, uh, Gladio. But I cannot discount the possibility. Uh, and I just have to weigh my demand for stable evidence against my desire, my frank desire for a satisfying and coherent narrative. Okay. So those are the years of lead. Now's the moment where I will stop and say, while this is happening in Italy and before, Gladio type operations are being set up all throughout the rest of Europe. So in this, let me take this moment to just sort of say some of the other stuff. We'll do a little tour of Europe and talk about what other stuff the Gladio type operations were up to in the different uh, European countries. So in France, for example, the hyper right wing types who would make up OAS and attempt to assassinate de Gaulle, prevent him from leaving Algeria, those kind of people, the, the French ultra right. They're, of course, co-opted as part of this operation, uh, although the French being so prickly and uh, hostile to NATO over uh, NATO authority, uh, they, they, they always kept them at arm's length. Uh, in Greece, um, generals who were on the CIA pay payroll, they carried out a coup in 1967 that overthrew the democratic government there uh, and ruled for a decade. Uh, in Turkey, the name for this operation was Counter Guerrilla, and Counter Guerrilla, even though Turkey had never been occupied during World, but during World War II, afterwards the CIA intimately uh, uh, was intimately associated with the emerging Turkish, what became deep state, uh, their intelligence apparatus, uh, and their their military the, uh, high command. Uh, the guys who ended up being what what was called accurately by Erdogan a deep state, which he has now largely overthrown and uh, reconstituted on his side, is actually kind of brilliant. Um, but at this point, it was still very much a, a hand in glove thing with Washington. It was carrying out American uh, prerogatives in the region, and so Gladio, uh, so counter guerrilla. Some of the stuff that counter guerrilla is accused of doing is founding the Gray Wolf nationalist paramilitary organization 
that we like to uh that we make fun of with the name of our fans uh promise we're not fascist is just irony god damn it but so creating the gray wolves uh and doing things like perhaps carrying out the taxim square massacre of 1977 in which a massive left-wing demonstration that was in the square was fired on from concealed positions in nearby buildings uh over 40 people were killed uh and the the people who carried it out were never found through a amazingly bot due to an amazingly botched investigation that left a lot of people wondering if it was associated with this turkish deep state uh a question that became even more uh potent uh in 1980 when the turkish state was overthrown in a military coup that was headed by the turkish director of the counter guerrilla program so that was another that was a win um in spain the death of Franco in 1975 created political ferment for the first time, and the dictatorship broke down, and a new emerging multi-party democracy uh, burst forth. And the U.S. needed to make sure that they directed that uh, process. So uh, in 1977, uh, a office for communist-affiliated lawyers was raided uh, and sprayed with machine gun fire. Uh, killing five people. Uh, the attack was later connected to local Spanish and, interestingly, Italian neo-fascists. And that's where it's good to point out that there was a lot of cooperation between these different organizations. There was something like a black international, like a fascist solidarity. Uh, it's sort of modeled on Operation Condor, which was military and intelligence cooperation between the, the Southern Cone Latin American dictatorships to share data and help each other extradite and kidnap uh, of opponents of the regimes. Okay, so now let's get back to how we know any of this is true. How do we know this even happened? And what happened is is that in the 1980s there was a uh, there was a massive liquidity sandal, uh, a massive liquidity crisis in the Italian banking sector that was triggered by the collapse of a bank called Banco Ambrosiano. So, Banco Ambrosiano was a bank that essentially laundered money back and forth between itself and the Vatican Bank. Uh, it was in an incestuous relationship with the Vatican Bank, uh, and. Money was being funneled through it, uh, through the money that was being money that was being smuggled through the Vatican Bank was then sent to Bank of Brasiano back and forth, and so eventually somebody got left with the hot potato, and the bank was left with a huge deficit that could not be found anywhere. The money was gone, uh, and in the investigation that followed, a lot uh, a lot of things were uncovered, uh, including. Um, a lot of things related to the head of the the head of the P2 Lodge, the guy who ran the entire show, Licio Gelli. Uh, that he was the guy who ended up bringing the whole thing down when his association with uh, the Bank of Braziano led to a police raid of his home, which found a name of over 900 members of the P2 Lodge and also uh, minutes and notes related to the strategy of tension. Uh, as I said earlier, on that list that was discovered, 
was the name of later Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, uh, implying very heavily that the people who were in charge then never really gave up power, even though this moment led to uh, Gladio being revealed publicly. Uh, So the investigation spread out. A number of people were implicated. Uh, Lucio Gelli was eventually, after uh, a lot of uh, back and forth and extraditions, was eventually uh, given a surprisingly light uh, sentence, considering the fact that he was materially tied to this network of right-wing fascist terrorists who had killed many people over the course of the years. Um, One of the other things that happened is that uh, Roberto Calvi, who was the the manager of uh, the... uh, the manager of Bracco and Braziano, the man who was called God's banker because of his association with the Vatican Bank, was found hanging both from Blackfriars Bridge in London in 1982 after he fled the country following the breaking of the Braziano scandal. Uh, he had rocks in his pockets. Uh, some people actually think that the way that the rocks were in his pockets were some sort of satan- uh, Masonic message and Who am I to say otherwise? Another person associated with the collapse of the bank uh, and the entire scandal was a man named Michael Sindona, who was a chief member of Propaganda Due, who uh, was associated with all kinds of not only Gladio stuff, but mafia, drug running, and money laundering. Uh, He also fled the country. He, He was arrested and charged in the United States. He was extradited to Italy. He was taken back to the United States. He eventually settled after many fights and attempts to escape and a, and a fa- phony kidnapping that he carried out on himself in order to try to get people to think that he wasn't around anymore. He eventually um, ended up in Italian prison where he was promptly poisoned with cyanide in his morning coffee. Um, that is another thing that absolutely happens. You can look this guy up, Michelle Sindona, Michael Sindona a man who was poisoned in his prison cell with a cyanide-laced coffee. No one was ever charged. No one was ever named as a suspect. They just figured, hey, this guy's got a lot of enemies. This guy who has direct knowledge of all of this shit, literally poisoned in prison. I mean, think about it. At least here with Epstein, they're giving you the, they're uh, taking you seriously enough to extend the courtesy of lying to you that he committed suicide so that you don't have to just have it though so flagrantly in your face that they can do what they want and that there's nothing you can do about it here they're like yeah no fuck it we'll just poison this coffee and then we'll say yeah someone poisoned him and then that'll be the end of it so this investigation snowballed it led to a huge uh, parliamentary uproar and eventually in 1990 a massive investigation and public series of public hearings in which <clears throat> that was that culminated in uh Giulio Andriotti, who was the, he was the personification of the Christian Democratic Party after World War II. He was the backbone of the whole thing. He was the party maestro. He was the prime minister any number of times. He would basically be prime minister whenever he wanted to be. He was, um, he was the heart and soul of the party, uh, was brought before the parliament and admitted that Gladio was real, that the P2 Lodge was real, that that all of this mafia-associated violence, false flag attacks, murders, let's not forget, this is Italy, 
tons of murders of prosecutors and police who were looking into this during this time period. But I kind of forgot that. I really should. The whole time this is happening, people are looking into this. Journalists, uh, prosecutors, cops, judges, and they're getting blown up and murdered uh, by the fucking fistful. And he admits most of this to the public in 1990, and it led to a huge crisis. And uh, Italian politics has really never been the same since. Same since, rather. Sorry. So that is the last we hear of Gladio as a, in terms of its paper trail of, of verifiable things. You can talk about things like Gladio II, which is the theory that the rise of radical Muslim terrorism is essentially uh, a, a continuation of the strategy of tension that was used in Italy, that everything from the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to al-Qaeda to ISIS are all essentially CIA-sponsored operations. Uh, this is another situation where you have a very convincing narrative line, but I'm not necessarily convinced that the evidence is strong enough on the ground to make me take it seriously. Uh, even though the, 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 the fact of how well, uh, radical Islamic uh, terrorism has benefited, uh, uh, the post cold war American, um, uh, geo strategy is very interesting uh and and something to think about but like that i i i don't want to like i said the kushba stamp of approval i want to i don't want to put it on everything uh but uh, you know this is all stuff that you have to think about and consider when you're trying to make sense of the world uh i mean there's other strands i could pull on this i could talk about this shit all day uh i mean if you really want to get nutty you want to look at belgian gladio uh you want to look at something called the brabant killings uh, these are things that I'm just going to throw out there without any, I'm not even going to dignify them necessarily with a narrative explanation. Uh, I'm just going to say, as conspiracy nuts have from time immemorial, do your own research, folks. Uh, I'm just saying you can pull on a strand and find it interesting or not. Uh, uh, but the Brabant killings, just parenthetically, are nuts. Uh, it was a series of spectacularly violent and public uh, and, and audacious robberies of mostly grocery stores in Belgium in the 80s that where uh, a, three dudes in a van would roll up, firing guns out of the window, murdering people in the fucking parking lot, shooting randomly anyone they encountered for a relatively small amount of money. Uh, and, you know, tactics and firearms associated with the uh, Belgian special forces that were part of Belgian Gladio operations uh, were connected to the, to the attacks, which, by the way, were never solved. These guys would show up, shoot a bunch of civilians, grab some money, shoot a cop on the way out, no one was ever caught. Very odd. But once again, I don't have anything beyond that. I don't know. I can't know any of this. And I think that's what I want to leave people with. As much as this is amazing to think about and, and as much depth as you could give any of this if you chose to look at it, at the end of the day, as long as power is behind the curtain, we're not going to know any of this stuff. And more importantly, our knowledge of it doesn't change our material conditions in any way. Uh, I mean, honestly, the real danger with this stuff is if you take it to its maximal endpoint, you end up in a world where you can't change anything because these people have the power to be anywhere and everywhere at any time and make any outcome happen. And if that's the case, why do anything? Why vote for Bernie Sanders? They're just going to hit him with the heart attack gun. You know, why do anything? They're just going to stop you. And so... That is a real danger, 
And the way to pull back from that is to just look at your material conditions and remind yourself that they have to work to keep things this shitty. This is not just us being awful. There are people with vested interests in keeping things a certain way. Will described the intelligence community as the organized crime for the ruling class, and that's 100% accurate. That's why they work hand-in-glove with organized crime uh, everywhere else that they act, because it's the same model. It's the same criminal model with a specific end of maintaining existing power structures and revenue models. But they have to work at it. They have, they, they're, they're doing a job because we have the numbers and we have the possibility to organize. And when there's enough of us, we can fucking overthrow this shit. We can take it to them. And because they rule through fear and ignorance and fear and ignorance are both things that are remedied by solidarity. Because if you're with other people, you're not as scared. And with your, with other people, you're not as ignorant because you have the wisdom of everyone around you. And those are the things that can counteract these people. And that's true whether Jeffrey Epstein killed himself or he was murdered or they switched his body. The only way we're ever going to find out is if we tear down the veil. And the only way we're going to tear down the veil is if we do it together. Because if we all do it at once, they can't stop us, not with all the MK Ultras and fucking Gladios and Condors in the world. Because there's more of us than them, always. So have fun with it. That's my final comment. Have fun with the conspiracy stuff. Use it to inform your your worldview. Like when you know something like Gladio is real, when you know we were doing this shit, it really informs uh, the way you look at things like the collaboration between uh, far-right groups and uh, the police now. Like, that, that there's a model for that sort of interaction between extra legal uh, reactionary muscle and the formal military and police powers in a state, you know. And now we you you can you can take that model. the The role of drugs in lubricating the international intelligence uh, operations, the way that drug money is such a, is is used and utilized to uh, to fund operations that can't be ever. Uh, have their books examined that's another thing that you can keep in mind when you look at the the politics of heroin and the way that you know uh, so say for example the taliban was on the verge of wiping out opium in afghanistan before 9-11 and now afghanistan is the world capital of opium well it is uh well we're nominally in charge of it but while you're doing this just keep your Keep your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground and remember the world around you and remember your duty to the people around you and how that matters more and moving forward in that direction with others, uh, it, it, it can overcome anything. And the thing is, if it can't, if it really is total control, then you fucking try. And that's all anyone can ask of anyone of this point.